Sounds may be perceived as color, or color as odor. I, I knew that the boys smoked pot, and they, they equally knew that I disapproved. Yes, I was free above the planet F, so it was rotating majestically below me. New Year in Australia. Hey there, I'm Stu Buchanan, and you're listening to the new Weird Australia podcast. Now, it's been quite a few minutes since the last podcast, but uh, in the intervening period, quite a few things have happened. For a start, this episode is recorded in the second wave, I think it is, or maybe it's the third wave of lockdown in New South Wales. Victoria also now back into lockdown as well. I can't remember how many waves or how many lockdowns we're in, but however many it is, it is way too many. So I hope wherever you are that you're staying safe. Now on the brighter note, since the last podcast we released a new compilation. It's called Space Between Space. 28 explorations of the time in which we're living and what a time it is. And in the space in which we are attempting to survive day by day, let alone thrive. All proceeds from the release are going to be donated to the Barpadilia Appeal, which supports Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and community affected by COVID-19. Now, we've raised over $600 thus far since the comp dropped a couple of months ago. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out, then head over to newweirdaustralia.bandcamp.com where you can name your price to stream or download the release. And it's a big one too, as I say, 28 tracks, but all of them are unreleased. So a huge thanks to the artists for coming forward and stepping up and uh, giving us all of those wonderful, wonderful tracks for the compilation. You're in for a real treat. Now, as I said at the top, this episode is the first for quite a while, but it's also, perversely, the last in our current interview season. Now, if you're late to the party, you'll have missed chats with the likes of Sia Ahmad and Penelope Traps, Party Dozen, Lawrence Pike, and on and on and on. But don't worry, all episodes are, of course, archived and available right now on the podcast feed. So what's coming up next? Well, the next wave of episodes are taking us back to the old school days of our FBI radio program, which ran in the early 2010s, featuring a much broader mix of program with a focus on playing new music from a wide spectrum of artists. So if you're making music and you would like to be featured on the pod, then send us some music. Email us with some links via info at newweirdaustralia.com. And the first episode in that new season will be out very soon in a couple of weeks, in fact. So stay locked to your podcast feed. Look forward to that one, as I say, dropping super soon. Now, in this episode, we're talking with artist Bridget Chapel, raver musician, writer and organiser who makes frenetic electronic music as hex tape and has been organising parties and drains, observatories and other weird and fascinating locations for many years. In 2020, Bridget released a debut album under their own name titled Undertow which runs data from City of Melbourne's open data platform through a MIDI-based sonification process, which is then partnered with the public sound sculpture, the Federation Bells, and also layered with cello and electronics as well. Brought up in Canberra, now resident in Melbourne, uh, Bridget has a diverse practice that also encompasses writing and teaching and curating, as well as sound art for installations and performances, most recently for their first solo exhibition, No Comment, 
which was investigating the science of phase cancellation and its potential role as an act of sonic resistance, which sounds fascinating. Now, we cover uh, all of these topics and more in this interview, which also features music from both of their recent releases. You can find out more about their work at BridgetChapel.com. This is Bridget Chapel on New Weird Australia. Well, look, thanks, Bridget, for um, taking the time to have a chat today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Much appreciated. Yeah. I want to talk to you for, for ages. I wanted to start actually with raves um, because uh, I I grew up in a very different rave culture in Scotland and the UK, and I, I, I don't really have, I don't have a first-hand experience at all of Australian rave culture. Um, right. But uh, so can, can you remember the, your first rave? Oh, my first rave was in Sydney, actually, uh, because I spent um, some of my formative years in Canberra, which had no raves that I was aware of at the time. Uh, it had no nothing that I was aware of. I think probably it had something, but, you know, it's everyone's right to resent the place that they grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously when you're a teenager, you usually just want to get to the biggest messiest metropolis possible and listen to the most extreme music possible um yeah so i started going up to sydney on the weekends to go to these gabba raves i think they were usually around Parramatta, and they were these like yeah really amazing dank like multi-roomed affairs you know one room of like 180 bpm one room of 200 bpm um, and yeah, it obviously started scratching an itch that I wasn't aware that I had, but has kind of <laughs> stuck with me ever since. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's yeah. a, there is that kind of common ex- um, experience, I think, that shared experience of, um, you know, whether it's your first rave or, or, or kind of early rave experiences where it really does rewire something in your brain because it's so, you know, it's so antithetical to live music or club culture like it's 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 completely removed from those things did you get then the kind of burning need to essentially kind of do your own um i mean yeah raves definitely serve a really um important use for underage people uh yeah you know you can't get into clubs as easily um raves you can um So, yeah, that's probably just the first kind of um, pragmatic motivation that anyone has to get involved in them. Uh, It's funny, actually. I mean, because I went to a gig yesterday and I was like, oh, yeah, cool, an an ambient gig. This will be interesting to go and watch. And it was funny what uh, how quickly um, the urge came over me to leave the room, Uh, not because the music was bad or the people were bad or anything like that. I just kind of. I just get a bit bored and antsy in those spaces. Mm. Um, maybe there's not enough going on. <laughs> um, or there's maybe the script is too prescribed or something. Whereas like I like it raves, it's um, a lot um, more unexpected. Um, and there just seems to be a greater degree of um, 
I don't know the possible to the possibility to um, plan your own destiny. Mm. Um, a lot of strange things can happen at them, and you can really um, be part of shaping it. A, a, an example for me is just that um, I can't be around strobe lights, um, and when I'm in clubs and there's strobe lights, I either need to leave or I need to try and talk to the person who's running them to get them to turn them off but sometimes that's not a possibility whereas at raves uh if there is a strobe i just kind of like find where it's plugged in at the wall and unplug it and then have right. the conversation afterwards and it's usually fine <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so i just say you know they're quite participatory and playful um and they're really like kind of each one is a real one-off. Like you can't, you can't mm. sleep on it. You need to get there and be involved in it, or or you miss the bus. That's interesting, isn't it? That no two are ever the same, and even if you do try and replicate the experience of the previous one, it's, it'll it'll never. It's just an impossible. It's an impossible task. Um, I mean that yeah. that that kind of autonomy you mentioned is critical to it. I remember, I mean, I can't now actually recall the text itself, but I remember Raves in Edinburgh, there was a whole kind of crowd that were really into um, Hakim Bay and the sort of idea of the temporary autonomous zone, like, you know, the space, sure. inside, and space inside the rave is kind of sacrosanct, but also free and, you know, and separate from that which exists outside, which I definitely felt as a, you know, yeah. as a punter. Yeah, and I think one of the other um, sets of expectations that it suspends in you is uh, what what's appropriate music for a party? What would you dance to? Um, and I don't know. I, I think that you can take a lot more artistic risks at raves. Um, you're not really worried about paying rent or selling drinks or any of the overheads that um, motivate a lot of club owners in how they curate their, their club nights and things like that because yeah definitely um I've had conversations with people who run club nights um and they say oh yeah you know I, I would love to have a gabba night here but it just wouldn't work wouldn't fly um and you just don't have to worry about any of that at a rave you can have three hours of harsh noise and people will still work out how to dance to it <laughs> that's a really beautiful thing to watch <laughs> yeah. I love your distinction earlier between you know one's 200 and one's 180 and, you know, <laughs> and those vibes are very different I love it. I love totally it. <laughs> yeah 180 the chill out room <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean there is a balance though between you know that kind of the freedom and the liberty and the kind of DIY nature of it but also the kind of I guess the kind of practicalities of creating uh, a safe space and the right location and so on. Other other particular kind of things you think are are sort of critical when thinking about where uh, to have a rave. Yeah, there's definitely a set of criteria. Um, the kind of dream spot is somewhere enclosed uh, in a non-residential area, um, so you can be loud and uh, less chance of having noise complaints called in. Um, somewhere that uh, is ground level accessible because you probably have to wheel heavy gear in and we're also me and my friends when we set up raise we're also just looking for um, things that won't kind of same like hazards later on like you don't want drunk people jumping off things at three o'clock in the morning um, so we've definitely vetoed what would other be quite good locations because they don't seem particularly safe Um yeah, uh, sometimes you're really lucky and you find somewhere with um, the power turned on. But usually, yeah, you accept that you're going to bring a generator in. 
and just somewhere that feels cool and has a vibe really yeah. yeah on the subject of safety though i think it's like quite an interesting one and certainly needs to be unpacked because i think that um the question of safety whilst partying has it's really been absorbed into um capitalist narratives and it's this kind of uh service provision now mm. that party goers um, might almost tacitly demand when they're like paying their club entry fee or something. Um, there's this kind of latent expectation that um, the organizer will have some kind of safer spaces policy in place, uh, which is all good and well. But I think this kind of, um, I think it removes the, yeah, I don't know, this participatory nature of creating a safer space. Um I think sometimes the idea of a safer space is an illusion and that's mm. that's not to um, – I really don't want to discount or kind of cloud that with um, the importance of people recognizing their privilege in spaces and learning how to leverage privilege. Um, but I think probably one of the least effective ways of doing that is just by paying $10 to a club organizer and, you know, expecting them to – provide you with a safe space mm. to get messed up in um yeah i really like the the model of how this plays out at a rave instead where you're kind of encouraged to recognize um the autonomy and agency that you have yeah. to contribute to the safe space which is yeah the example that i had of say like yeah just unplugging a strobe light if it's gonna mess with someone yeah you're not or, resolving the responsibility to whoever is you know yeah uh, who, yeah whoever is promoting it you take uh, you take responsibility for yourself yeah and, 100%. And, and and for those around you you know um but but essentially yeah. you're not you're not relinquishing that responsibility yeah that's it and it's like yeah if you get to a rave and you see that there is doesn't seem to be like a nice comfy chill out room somewhere then yeah make one like if there's glass smashed on the floor and no one's cleaned it up yet maybe maybe you could do that uh if someone seems to be freaking out and having a bad time go talk to them um and then from there i think that kind of yeah, agency-driven um, nature of approaching the situation instead of outsourcing it, that then lends itself to other situations. Like if police arrive, maybe you're not one of the people who would be targeted or profiled and you see other people who are, then, you know, step in. Like what can you do? Maybe don't bail straight away just because um, police can be a bit scary. reissue of Too Fast Too Furious you've written a manifesto um, <laughs> which talks about some of those things you've just described yeah right? um, what prompted you to write the manifesto and can you tell us a little bit about it as well it's pretty tempting to write a manifesto <laughs> right of course <laughs> 
it, it was a bit of a joke that ended up becoming quite serious because I, well, I mean, yeah, I'd been writing uh, essays about kind of topics like this for a while and these are, yeah, conversations that I have with people and we just thought it would be, um, yeah, a nice thing to include um, on the reissue of the EP because it was some kind of like summary of the politics behind it um I just really think that raves are um really fertile testing grounds or training grounds um for yeah building community and enacting anti-police politics um that yeah that could be very useful in other parts of our Mm. life as well um and to be clear I I'm not saying oh everyone has to like stand and fight the cops no matter what um otherwise you don't deserve a rave um I think one of the key points is uh yeah learning how to leverage privilege if you feel that you have it um to then yeah I don't know see how it feels to face the cops um I think that it's I think that a lot of it is um just practice and acclimatization like anything else I um I cut my teeth as an activist um many many years ago in Palestine I spent a year there yeah, doing direct action uh, with uh, Palestinian groups in the West Bank. And, I mean, I suppose that was a good um, place for acclimatizing to that kind of stuff because you're just dealing with police and army constantly. And that then kind of set me on a course of, yeah, doing a lot of direct action politics. And that's certainly what has informed my approach to putting on raves. Mm. And I think there's the illusion of the power of the police and then there's the reality of the power of the police but there's so much maneuverability inside of that sometimes Mm -hmm. um and a lot of that is quite temporal Uh, i think if you can get used to not getting frozen in their headlights so to speak um you can actually i don't know you can pull off a lot more than they'd like Mm -hmm. you to think um but it really requires you to act as a group that care about each other as opposed to this individualist like I've got to protect myself I deserve a safe space kind of thing and and I paid for it so I have to have it <laughs> yeah. yeah I think that's I think that was really important one thing you said there I remember myself having that realization of and, and you mentioned it in the manifesto about separating the fear of the police from the power of the police mm. and that was really critical for me as you know growing up because yeah we were scared of the police and you know mm. a variety of different situations um but just understanding that actually, knowing your rights is one thing but but just being able to separate those two things which is a, a real kind of uh psychological trick yeah 100 percent. and like you know they are scary like mm. it's <laughs> yeah. it's not like i've like figured how to like uh you know re- remove that from me surgically or something it's just um a- immersion therapy or something yeah
we sort of alluded there to your new EP. Well, it's sort of new because it's a it's a re-release of one that came out last year, but it's been remastered and there's some uh, amazing uh, coterie of remixers uh, on there as well, which is which is pretty phenomenal. Um, tell us a little bit about this one, Too Fast, Too Furious, and the sort of backstory of that one. The original was made over two years um, from a variety of locations that I was living in. Um, and yeah, it was really just a, a huge uh, rave nostalgia um, slash rave futurism uh, kind of trip. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, it was just so nice. What a good reception it had when it first came out, the original one. And then Sasha from Interrograde, the label that put it out, uh, suggested re-releasing it with remixes um and that I mean look I really didn't have to do very much for the re-release this was just a really big love-in with uh friends and other artists that we love and work with um approaching them and asking them to do remixes and it was a really broad interesting spectrum of responses I really love remixes I love doing them for friends it feels like a love letter to their work you know like they kind of send you the guts of it which is quite intimate like showing someone your stems like the individual audio Mm. tracks that make up the final piece it's a little bit revealing you know they get to say uh how bad your voice sounds um (laughs) when it's not layered and (laughs) uh, just how many (laughs) <laughs> how many kick drum tracks you actually use to make this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a sweet little trust exercise as well. Um, and it was really nice to see the responses that everyone brought back. Um, yeah, getting one from uh, Gabba Modus Operandi uh, from Indonesia was really nice. I played a show with those guys when they toured here last year Um and obviously, I'm such a big fan of their work. So that was really nice that they wanted yeah. to jump on board as well. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the label? Because um, there's some amazing artists on there. Um, how did you kind of hook up with them? And is, is there a kind of like ethos for the label? Like what's the what's the community like? It's a really great label. Yeah, I feel really lucky to be part of the milieu. And we actually met because we put on a rave together a few years ago. We are... Uh, kind of we got thrown together uh because um we were both individually approached to help put on a rave as the after party for a film festival um and I'd been putting on raves for a while before that uh with other friends and then yeah it was Sasha from Interrograde who I worked with together on that and we gelled really well and I think perhaps he hadn't been putting on kind of yeah like illegal DIY parties so much prior to that and um i'm just so enthusiastic about showing people how to put generators in drains and things like that and yeah he he took to it really well and he's yeah really wonderful to work with everyone else at interrograde is really lovely to work with and it's kind of expanded to yeah a pretty good family of people now um and you have a kind of very nice overlap of uh the people who will perform whether live or dj um and the people who are behind the scenes yeah lugging the gear into the abandoned warehouse and you know running the bar and all those kinds of things because i think yeah everyone kind of does need to um be prepared to jump into any role for stuff like that um yeah no it's it's a really exciting label uh i'm excited to see what they do next very interesting 
curation, um, even just like the graphic designers and stuff that they mm. bring in to work on it is Great. awesome. Um, you you just dropped something there in passing uh, that I want to pick up on, which was the word drain, because you because drains uh, apparently are you know part of your. Uh, kind of story as well because you you used to run a kind of what, what do you call them drain rave uh crew but and essentially you you were putting on raves and drains you know what sort of size are we talking about i can't really picture it I'm, i can't get a sense in my head some of them would be uh some of them um kind of have the size and the acoustics of a small concert hall right. um other ones would perhaps just be you know the 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 width and height of maybe like a lounge room um and the acoustics for those are a lot less flattering but pretty funny to try and work with (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know i i just really like um getting into weird places and kind of you know uh getting into parts of the city that maybe um are a bit unattended so yeah i'd been kind of spending time in drains for other reasons for years and then the next logical step was to start putting a PA down there, which I, uh, you know, like the punk scene in Melbourne had already mm. been doing, which is where I learned a lot of these things. Um, but then it was really funny when it ultimately led to making this, uh, yeah, like large scale um, sound work about it um, called Undertow, uh, which is, yeah, it was a, kind of like a installation last year um, for the city of Melbourne Um, and then this year was released on vinyl as well which was really special.
it's quite a leading narrative there to kind of go from the from the drain raves to to the undertow project because they are absolutely meshed like you say yeah. one <laughs> one one follows the other so let's talk about undertow then so in some of the literature i read it said it was it was a commission as such um it was from yeah it was from the city of melbourne for this event that they put on called knowledge week which is very you know like science technology that type of stuff uh and they wanted an artist to compose a piece of work for the Federation Bells, which is this large carillion of bells, I think 37 bells, um, which are actually, they live um, on the banks of the Yarra River. Um, but they wanted a piece of music pa- made for the bells or using the bells, but informed by uh, information from the City of Melbourne's open data platform. Um, yeah, which is just a huge collection of public data about the city itself. Um, So, yeah, obviously I jumped on the portal when I first got the commission to kind of suss out what data sets I would be using. I have to say a lot of it was quite dry and I was like, oh, what what am I going to do with this? It was like, you know, how many how many like parking spaces are occupied right now in the city there was a bit of like greenwashy stuff as well like oh the urban forest and how many birds live in the city like obviously you know there's there's some but (laughs) there's not many um and then I stumbled across uh three maps which just instantly jumped out at me and I knew that's what I was going to use two were uh maps from the early colonial era of Melbourne I think from 1850 um showing the creeks and waterways and wetlands of the CBD then Um, and then I also found a map of the underground drain network of exactly the same area Um, and if you superimpose the latter over the former um, well of course they match up because the the, all of the waterways of the city are just shaped by the topography um, Mm. where the where the above ground water needs to go when it rains where it flows and how it ultimately ends up in the Yarra River which ultimately empties out into the bay Um, that doesn't change just because you put a city on top of it Um, and it was just quite chilling to see that I don't know in such um, uh, certain terms so I was able to extract the geospatial data from this fortunately because it was um, kind of overlaid on google maps um and i then set about developing developing a process of what's called sonification which is a method of or the principle of it is to make data that would usually be visual like a map or a graph or a table or an excel spreadsheet or something um make it audible Um, so it's something that you can hear instead I think the original um, motivations behind this was purely just for accessibility so say for people that have vision impairments and maybe can't read a map in the traditional sense uh, how would you make an audible map instead or something Mm. like that Um, but I think it's become at least in like the western canon of music it's become increasingly in vogue lately um as a compositional tool um uh, i mean and yeah i say in western music uh only recently just because i mean like yeah straight from the get-go of working on this project um i was acutely aware that 
yeah, there's lots of data music about all of these waterways already, uh, which would come under the you know umbrella term of songlines um, yeah, and yeah. yeah methods of musical navigation that um, have been used by the traditional owners of the Yarra River since time immemorial. So it was very important to me to not make a piece of music about the river. Um, it was mm. important that I was trying to make a piece of music about the colonial responsibility of what has been done to the river so far. Um, and I thought that was, that, and that was kind of my approach to the sonification as well. I didn't just want to talk about where the river is, but also how has it been enclosed in different spaces? Like, you know, where has brick been built around it? Where has it been concreted? Um, what are the flood levels? How are they affected? Uh, the salination of the river now that um, particularly because there was this uh, waterfall uh, that used to be in where the CBD is now that was blown up by settlers so they could expand the river and stop it flooding at one point. Things like that. Yeah, um, but yeah, sonification is still, uh, I would say, yeah, like a fairly, um, it's in its infancy in, in Western music. So it's not like we have a kind of um, standardized map legend. You know, when you sit down to read a map, it's pretty easy to tell what's what. It's not at that stage yet, and maybe it never will be. Um, uh, and it definitely is a pretty interesting compositional tool. Again, it's one of those things where I think conceptually, it sounds incredible. I guess what I, where my knowledge gap is translating that map and the data to to the MIDI and to the sounds. Like, what is the kind of process or linking between those? The first thing that I did was just to, as I said, um, get the geospatial data of particular, yeah, particular things on the map. So, say that I'm looking at a wetland. Um, I would uh, get Google Maps to extract um, a whole bunch of numbers that are just latitudinal and longitudinal coordinates, uh, marking out the border of the wetland, chuck that in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and then you kind of go through a process of what's called massaging the data. I, that was really just like kind of reducing it down from like 20 million decimal points to, you know, like three decimal points for each number. Um, and then kind of uh, looking at it manually for for patterns, kind of saying, oh, where does it go down? Uh, yeah, like wh where can you see like kind of things starting to emerge in it just from looking at it like that. Ultimately, then I converted those like that long series of numbers in a table to MIDI numbers, which numbers 1 to 88 to correspond with um, the keys on a full-length piano. And the really, really funny thing about this is that um, I was using Ableton Live uh, to compose all of this um, and to put MIDI notes into uh, what's called the piano roll in Ableton Live. Um, which uh, kind of presents itself as a table as well that you have to go and then draw the notes into. So I, you know, went back to Ableton Live and I had all of these like converted geospatial coordinates into MIDI notes and punched those into the piano roll. Um, and it actually drew the same shape of the wetland as I had been looking at originally on the map. Um, 
That's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I felt like a bit of an idiot because I was like, oh, I just could have drawn it in and no one would have to know. So that's my pro tip for sonification. You could do it in five minutes, just like draw <laughs> stuff. Like it's the ultimate kind of like graphic score to sonification trick, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but so uh, that that was the first thing to kind of like lay down the, the sites that I'd be working around um and then yeah went about finding out uh this other information uh often to do with um flood levels of the waters uh, because that's a really common thing the the river floods um still quite often despite the colony's best attempts to attenuate that um especially particular points that now have stuff built over them um in melbourne the the low point like the midpoint of the valley that then flows into the Yarra River is where um, this big main street, Elizabeth Strait, now runs. Um, and underneath Elizabeth Strait is this huge drain, which is, yeah, essentially still a river. It's just underground. Um, and because it's in the bottom of the valley, Elizabeth Strait often still floods. So say, yeah, for the movement, um, which is the final movement of the pace, which is about Elizabeth Strait, um, there's just this uh, motif that you hear throughout the piece um, of a rising pitch, which symbolizes uh, like all these different historical floods um, throughout the 20th century um, and kind of where they got up to. Um, yeah, there's other kind of more basic storytelling sounds in the work as well. Something I kind of came up with particular motifs throughout the work to symbolize the dredging of the river so mm. kind of widening it and deepening it in parts to get bigger more industrial ships further upstream um and yeah also the part where um freshwater falls uh was blown up by settlers i i wasn't really interested in trying to dress that up that was that's just mm. the sound of an explosion um yeah but so the the record comes with a map legend essentially um so if people want to kind of listen to it um and just yeah have the story told to them sonically it's, it's possible
when you first ran the data set, as you say, you mapped it into Ableton, and you know it's it, it played on one one to eighty eight. Um, can you remember when you first heard it? Like, what was it? What you expected? Like, uh, it sounded pretty janky it? at first. I think um, the first thing that occurred to me was that I wanted to kind of like massage the um, the input notes to conform to a particular scale of some kind um like for what needed to be a 20 to 30 minute work I didn't want it to be totally atonal I wanted to be able to use atonality um or kind of jarring uncomfortable uh chords um you know like they needed to have a, a practical application like anything else in the music uh so then yeah I, I definitely ran them through particular scales in Ableton as well we're like you know keeping them as faithful as possible to the original but I think therein lies the point where sonification really becomes less about this like you know faithful uh application of data science and it just yeah it, it's a compositional tool yeah. or a storytelling tool or whatever you want to call it that was gonna be one, one, of my, yeah. one of my questions which is you know how um how sacrosanct is it and how malleable is it and like oh said, it's you know, it's not sacrosanct it. at all yeah i mean i think that like that i mean there's and there's definitely a lot of interesting examples of this one being uh earlier this year i can't remember which university it came out of it came out of but data scientists yeah worked with musicians to sonify the dna of the coronavirus um and it sounds like elevator music <laughs> <laughs> i mean which really like, lies it's you know it's, it's yeah i mean they, yeah. i mean they obviously ran it through um a major scale um i i just don't think it's possible that the notes could have been that harmonious naturally like the it's been massaged at various points throughout the sonification process. Um, I mean, I suppose for me, I probably couldn't have resisted the temptation to put it through a, a really horrible, stressful, jarring kind of scale. <laughs> Maybe that's too obvious. <laughs> Yeah, I look, I'm honestly, I'm more excited to see um, scientists sonifying things than seeing artists' uh, more clumsy attempts at sonifying science. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I've kind of like dabbled with it a bit myself, I'd like to think that um, if I have another crack at sonifying something, then I'll be able to, yeah, work out ways to... um, convey certain things with more clarity and depth Mm. yeah and i would be interested to see in years to come if some kind of yeah standardized sonic legend like a key um Mm. does emerge for compositions i mean because you know with classical music uh yeah there's all these like um very specific meanings behind certain motifs um that many people have um, now forgotten or never learned how to kind of read in the music. Mm. Um, but I think that at a certain points in time, that was a highly developed form of sonification. One of the other key parts of Undertow is cello, because you're, am I right in saying you're, you're a trained cellist from the <laughs> Melbourne Conservatory? Um, that been, and so that's been an instrument that you've maintained? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm... I I just wanted to take it up when I was a kid and I was really lucky that um, my parents were into that. Um, 
yeah, and I've returned to it throughout my life. Um, the role of the cello in Undertow, uh, it's actually playing, um, it's, yeah, conveying those other kinds of pieces of information about the water and what it's doing seasonally um, and things like that, as well as a bit of other storytelling devices. Uh, and then alongside that, um, there's a lot of electronics, which I've yeah just done in Ableton. Some of that was to convey the industrialization of the river. And then there's these other kind of moments of glitch, um, which I kind of just pepper sparingly throughout because otherwise the whole thing kind of could have been one big mess of digital distortion, which was supposed to convey, you know, like everyone's cognitive dissonance around yeah. this this river that, you know, we're really intertwined with and we look at every day and we're acutely aware of how messed up it is but kind of it's it's also totally normalized in our heads at the same time um and then these funny little kind of vaporwave motifs that I've had for the same reason to kind of uh represent yeah I don't know the contribution of um late capitalism to how we perceive the river now or how we yeah are allowed we allow ourselves to disconnect from it but again I had to be quite sparing with that i i just i think vaporwave is really interesting like obviously it's like this one of these like silly internet genres that was over in two seconds but i thought it was a really interesting and noble cause to try and uh represent the sound of capitalism in a genre and i thought it was really funny and like quite interesting in how it yeah. went about it yeah. it's one of those things where it's you know it's central like you say like it's central concept is is actually interesting and mm. some of those early kind of manifestations of it are interesting after a while, though, it kind of runs out of steam a little bit, I think. Oh, it's yeah. very same-same. Yeah, yeah, like it's a small cannon to work with. <laughs> yeah. But the core, of it, the core of it is fascinating. Thanks for your time. Really good to catch up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the pod. You've been listening to Bridget Chapel on the new Weird Australia podcast. You can find out more about their work at BridgetChapel.com. As I said, right at the top, we'll be back with some brand new episodes of the new Weird Australia podcast. A bit more of a kind of music radio show vibe coming your way very soon. And if you want to get your fix in the meantime, then head to our Spotify profile where you can find a number of playlists, a couple of companion playlists for our recent compilations, as well as our regular New Weird Australia brand new music playlist, which is updated all the time. Check us out on Spotify. You can also follow us on Bandcamp and sign up for the newsletter. Head to our website, newwearaustralia.com.au to make sure you get up to date with all of the stuff that's happening here at New Weird Australia. I'm Stuby Cat. I look forward to chatting with you again on the next New Weird Australia podcast.
There'll be no work done today in Sydney. A million of us are on the move, swarming into the streets like bees in the sun. No. Weird. Australia.